Hello and welcome. This is uh, Pastor Ken Ortiz. I am the lead and teaching pastor of Calvary Spokane in beautiful Spokane, Washington, in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. And we are just coming into the earliest part of spring. In other words, we call it the faux spring. It's nice for 10 minutes and then it gets cold and goes back and forth for the next couple of months. So anyway, uh, this podcast, if you haven't been with us, is designed basically uh, to accomplish something that the book of Chronicles speaks about, where it talks about there were 200 leaders of the tribe of Issachar. And it says, all of these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. And so what I attempt to do is kind of look at what's going on in the world around us and to bring them together in a way that helps us to make sense of what we see happening in the world. Because quite honestly, there's not only a lot of crazy stuff going on, but stuff that is coming at us with such rapidity, there's a real difficulty we have in absorbing and understanding it all. Um, Today's topic is the new world disorder. And I use the word disorder instead of order because really it's something that is dissonant. It's away from the order that God has ordained. So the world was ordered rightly before the fall, before Adam and Eve uh, transgressed and, and really introduced sin into human history. And ever since then, the world has been operating under various forms of disorder. And the Bible tells us as we get to the times of the end, the world will become increasingly disordered. And that's why it's really pressing upon you and I as Christians to really know how does God want us to live and how does he want us to understand these events. Now, the challenge that I've had, and one of the things that delayed me getting this broadcast together was that there are so many things of such a diversity that are happening all at once. It's really, quite honestly, taking me some time to kind of uh, pull it all together in my own mind and create some kind of system to it. Because what's amazing when you begin to break it all down and analyze it, that all of these things are interconnected. They're all working towards this same thing, something that our president referred to uh, in Europe this last week as the New World Order. Uh, basically, he said uh, that uh, that we were going to be part of this New World Order, the U.S. and Europe, that we're going to lead the way. And uh, he's really buoyed because of things like what's happened with the Ukrainian war. It's brought a unity not only to NATO members, but even brought countries like Sweden and Finland, which had been really reticent to become uh, involved with uh, with NATO because they didn't want to be in between NATO and the Russians. And now the Russian behavior in their view is so egregious that they now want to side with the United States and NATO countries against Russia. And this is bringing some very, very in important dynamics because what I think eventually it's going to do is it's going to really reduce the influence, the power and wealth of both Russia and China, and uh, those two entities which are primarily the opponents of this new world order. Now, there are some Christians, and I'm a little confused by uh, their lack of perspective, but nonetheless, who are kind of cheering on uh, Putin because he's been such an outspoken opponent to much of what is represented in the new world order with its new morality and its new economic systems and so forth and so on. But nonetheless, we, we can't help but miss the Point. can't miss the point that Russia is, is a really bad player and uh, China is even a worse player. And yet, in as I look at end times prophecy, I do not see Russia being a key player, although I do see China 
And I also see what Biden calls the new world order, this uh, community of uh, this one government that involves Europe and the U.S. and some other outliers. Now, before we dig into the details, I think scripturally we need to understand that this is all part of Satan's plan, not God's plan. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2.26, where Paul says, he talks about the trap of the devil who has taken men captive to do his will. Essentially, what he does is he dangles the carrot out in front of people. He induces them. He promises them uh, peace and safety, uh, a new world order where there's no more poverty, there's no more sickness, death, or uh, war, and things that are really uh, the enemies of a, a happy life, that he's going to remove all those things. We just have to submit unto his plan. Uh, we have to also keep in mind that God has a counter plan. John 8, 32, he, Jesus said that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And again, 2 Timothy 2, 15 says that the reason why we need to be uh, students of scripture is it enables us to correctly handle the word of truth. So what you have here is a falsehood that is countered by the truth of God's word. And so what the enemy really is focused on is how do I undermine the authority of God's word and get people to put that behind them or put it in a second or third place in their life and begin to look listen more to my voice and the things that I'm saying uh, through my various organs in the world. Uh, the key, key question I think that you and I have to ask ourselves is, uh, what is the greater authority in our life? I mean, Psalm 100 says that, Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His, and we are His people, the sheep of His pasture. So God puts a direct claim of authority over you, that He is your master. Even the word kurios, which is translated Lord in the New Testament over and over, simply means that this is the one who has mastery or lordship over everyone else. So He is my Lord, and He's my God. It means that, therefore, I am to be in submission to Him and follow his will and his plan. In fact, it's kind of hard in some degree to avoid that. As Paul explained to the Athenian philosophers in Acts, Acts 17, 8, he said, for in him, speaking of Christ, we live and move and have our being. Uh, we are his offspring. So we all are made in the image of God. We are Our life essence is the result of God's breathing into us the breath of life. He is the one who has given us a soul, that immaterial and eternal part of who we are, the true essence of the I, when I speak of my myself, that is what God has created. He's wrapped that in a body of flesh, but it's that soul that reflects the image of God. And what we find is that men often are trying to uh, erase the image of God and replace it with the image of their own making. So where does that bring us? Well, We've heard a lot, and especially if you've listened to my broadcast, but certainly it's all over the place about the Great Reset and what that means. But I think it's important for us to understand before there was the Great Reset, there was the Great Slip-Up, if I can put it that way. It's one of the things that Paul said in, in writing to the Hebrews where he said, not to let your faith slip. And I think that's one of the things that's happened, especially the role of the Bible in American life. Because as, as one commentator noted, the Bible has really moved uh, to a new position, uh, a depreciated position in American culture. I, I think that's obvious to everyone. But basically, there was a period up until really about 1973 where the Bible was authoritative and it was viewed very positively. People even who didn't necessarily 
believe in the Bible, believed in what the Bible said. They believed that there was truth and falsehood, good and evil, right and wrong. They believed the Ten Commandments were a good rule for life. And so essentially, all you had to say to people at that time was, well, the Bible says, and you had really uh, a, a position of authority in the conversation at that moment. People would listen and they would usually say, yeah, you're right, that's true. But we find that in 73, something very, very strange happened. The Supreme Court of the United States ruled that children were no longer children while they were still inside their mother's womb. It was the legalization of abortion. And essentially, there was something that really savaged the soul of the nation when we began to say to ourselves, it's okay to kill our children as long as they're unborn. Now, today, that's been extended far beyond that, that even after a child is born, if the parent doesn't want the child, the doctors in many states will actually execute the child in this uh, operating room because the parent doesn't want the child. So we have the most radical and uh, liberal abortion policy of any country in the entire planet. Even China doesn't allow that level of abortion. So uh it's really something that's really kind of amazing. But you have to understand, I, at least I believe very strongly, that when we began to embrace that, and even many Christians and churches basically said, well, the unborn aren't alive, that when we did that, we began to depreciate uh, the value of human life and in many ways undercut our own value as people. You know, it was Voltaire, of all people, the, the atheistic philosopher from 17th century France, who said, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Let me repeat that again. Those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. And what kind of absurdities are we talking about? Well, when we say that babies aren't babies because they're still in their womb or they don't have life because they haven't come out of the womb yet, that's an absurdity. I think that every woman who's ever become pregnant has basically referred to her belly as being her baby. Or even worse, when we begin to tell people that a man can become a woman or vice versa. I mean, as one philosopher put it, if they can convince you that a man can become a woman, they can convince you to believe in anything. So it's the same idea that what we believe has to be anchored in some kind of forensic reality, the real world that we live in. Because if we don't, we will begin going down a path that leads to no good end. We'll be justifying any kind of atrocity. So that when we talk about the Nazi Holocaust, for example, uh, all that Hitler had to do was condition people to believe that Jews were not fully or really people. And then many of them were quite willing not only to engage in genocide, but also just basically to not be bothered by it. They just ignored it. It wasn't relevant to them. It didn't affect their world, and it's probably better off to get the cockroaches out of the house. So, I mean, we look at that today and we go, how, do, how did an intelligent, advanced, educated society like Germany was during the 30s and 40s, how did they arrive at such a savage point of view? And the answer is we just believe absurdities that the whole idea behind it was absurd and the idea that race was passed through the blood is a scientific absurdity. We know that's not true. And yet, here was a very intelligent culture that embraced that. So we find that when once we began to believe these things that babies weren't really babies anymore, that it wasn't long before uh, the idea of marriage could be between um, two men or two women. And then we went from the fact that a man could become a woman and vice versa 
all of it is ludicrous on its face. It's just ludicrous on its face. The fact that anybody discusses it is, is really kind of confounding. 20 years ago, you probably would have been institutionalized. But now we've moved even beyond that because as we begin to accept those things, we find that the Bible itself holds a position that says all those views are wrong. And so the Bible now is no longer uh, seen as a positive. It's no longer seen as being neutral. It's seen as being negative. That the Bible to many people is a form of truth, whatever truth might have to be, because truth has no absolute. And therefore, because it's not absolute, it's authoritative only as much as I wanted to let it be authoritative. Instead, we replace it with a thing called situational ethics. It all depends on the situation, how I react. And ultimately, the full measure, the highest measure of what is good or bad is how it makes me feel. So personal autonomy has begun to be the, the real goal that I can live above and beyond any kind of standard and I can throw behind me anything I don't like. You know, it was G.K. Chesterton, the, the uh, British journalist and philosopher who so long ago made the statement, he says, when the unthinkable becomes debatable, it will soon become acceptable. And that's really where we've become that, you know, 20 years ago, the idea that a man could become a woman was totally unthinkable. You would have been laughed out of the room. But then we decided that we could debate it and discuss it. We gave it that kind of authority. And that's why the Bible says that some things should never be discussed. They shouldn't even come up for conversation because they're just evil, bad, and wrong. But they became debatable, and it soon became acceptable, even within the church itself, which is something I'll get to further on. But we see the long-term effect. In fact, in, in May 2015, we found that national public support for same-sex marriage rose to 60% of the population. So in 2015, 60% of Americans said, yeah, if two people love each other, it doesn't matter what their sex is, they can, they can get married. And that's when in 2015, the Supreme Court, which supposedly is not a political entity, but seems to be awfully affected by political waves and, and polls, uh, in a case called Obergefell versus Hodges, they ruled that the fundamental right of same-sex couples to marry on the same terms and conditions as opposite-sex couples. So not only did they in 73 declare that you could kill a baby in the womb, now they're saying that you can legally become married even though you're of the same sex, something that for most of our history and up to that point had been declared as something illegal. So today we're feeded with all sorts of strange things. We have people like uh, Richard, or he calls himself Rachel Levine, who is an admiral of the health service. Uh, he, was he was listed as one of the women of the year on Newsweek magazine. The Babylon Bee, which I read religiously, uh, did their satirical presentation of it. They made uh, Rachel Levine their, their man of the year, because that's what he is. He's a man, and he's not an attractive man, much less an attractive woman. Or we have the, the swim racer, Leah Thomas, who is actually William Thomas, who clearly is a man. He still has a male genitalia, but yet because he thinks he's a man or tells people he's a man, he can compete against women and take away all the prizes in most cases. Or one of my favorite is Bruce Jenner. I mean, for 52 years, he was Bruce. I mean, he he, he was in the Olympics. He won the pentathlon. Um, you know, he was Bruce. And then suddenly one day he came out and said, no, I'm no longer Bruce, I'm Caitlin. And everybody goes along with it. Even as I look at the the uh, conservative media, they always refer to Bruce as Caitlin. But he's Bruce. He's a guy. 
And that's why I think even in the confirmation hearings for the latest nominee for the Supreme Court, Kadanji Brown Jackson, uh, when, when uh, Senator Blackburn asked her, he said, can you define uh, what the word woman means? And she said she couldn't in this context, which I think was really cra- crazy because all we've heard endlessly is that she's the first woman of color uh, to be nominated to the Supreme Court, but she can't define what woman is. Maybe they got to get a chart and see if they can define what color she is. Well, the whole point is her answer ultimately became, you know, really the the line of late night jokesters if they weren't so woke is essentially said, no, I can't answer that because I'm not a biologist. (laughs) Somebody put it really simply, I'm not a veterinarian, but I know the difference between a dog and a cat. So, I mean, again, we hear people who are educated and attend uh, in, in educated who simply say the most ludicrous things, and we wonder, why is that? And the answer is because there is so much pressure on people to bow the knee to bail, if you will. Basically, we find that there is this ideology that demands compliance, and these people know that if they want to move up the ladder of success or if they want to become corporately successful, uh, what they need to do is bow the knee to something that they know is ludicrous. It's the idea of bowing before an idol that you know isn't anything. It's just a block of wood, but you're going to bow before it because you want the, the tribal chieftain to not kill you or eat you. I mean, it's 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 kind of this lack of the point where we come. We don't value our own uh, sense of self, our integrity. And it all begins with the idea that we throw away the Bible and we begin to say that truth is relative and doesn't matter. If truth is relative and it doesn't matter, then the only thing that matters ultimately is me, myself, and I. And I refer to that often as the evil trinity. Well, how did we get to this place? Well, part of it is we've been subjected to a long, decades-long uh, series of endless crises. I mean, when I was uh, 20 years ago, we were afraid of global cooling, and then it became global warming, and then global warming wasn't working because the temperatures weren't warming, so they changed it to climate change, which essentially means anything they wanted to mean. If it snows in the middle of summer, that's climate change. You know, if it's if it's warm in the middle of winter, then that's climate change, and they basically say that whatever weather pattern we happen to be subject to, although we've known for hundreds of years that these things follow pretty uh, regular cycles, we now are told it's climate change and it's existential in the sense that uh, it could lead to the extension of humanity and everybody goes into a panic. And that, that narrative was really having a hard time connecting until COVID came. And COVID-19 became the ultimate crisis. I mean, basically, uh, we had the, the Imperial College out of London warning us by their model, which has proved to be completely fallacious and inaccurate, that uh, 200 million people were going to die. In fact, 2 million people were going to die in America in the next three months. Well, not only did that not happen, but they had to manufacture manufacture uh, and, and alter and fabricate the numbers to make, the, uh, make it seem far more worse. And there is some strong evidence right now that suggests that the vaccine that they gave may have led to more deaths than the actual uh, virus itself. But I think we'll find out more and more as more of that information as the CDC is being forced and Pfizer is being forced to reveal their documents that they asked the courts to keep sealed for 75 years. Why? can only lead you to the conclusion they have something to hide. 
But we went, you know, we know we lived through it, the lockdowns, the masks, the mandates, none which have any scientific basis, yet nevertheless, we're told that we were told that it was science and we were a science hater if we didn't uh, uh, agree to it. And they ruled. And now that finally came. And right away, in fact, I read conversations leading up to this, that they said as soon as COVID is over, that's when they're going to move on to uh, back to climate change. What happened is climate change got upstaged by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And right away, what do we have? Not only do we have uh, Ukraine being invaded, but we have an energy crisis as a consequence. And suddenly all the talking heads in the current regime are talking about our need to go to electric and how we can have world peace if we all just went to electricity. I love it when Kamala Harris was speaking at, at a factory that's making electronic school buses. And her comment was that everyone has a right to clean, safe, inexpensive public transportation. In other words, she couldn't have been more clear, public transportation. And in fact, uh, even many, uh, Blum, Bloomberg uh, uh, said it, Wall Street Journal, others said, well, what people need to do is to save money is start taking a bus. Well, how about pumping oil? How about pumping gas? Well, we can't do that. And if we are short, we just need to go to some uh, despotic country who pumps like Venezuela or Saudi Arabia or some other country like Iran and buy it from them so we can help build their economies and as ours suffer. But you see, along with us, we're also finding this incredible spending that's been going on for the last uh, decade that we have now uh, inflation higher than we've seen in 50 years. Uh, the number is going to probably top out at least at 10%. And if we were using the old measurements, the CPI, it would be probably actually 15 to 20%. And every I'm not telling you anything you know. You go to the store and it everything costs more. Everything is is going up because it costs more to produce and so forth, and to transport, and on and on it goes. But what's concerning to many economists is that inflation could lead to stagflation, which was something we lived through in the 70s. That meant basically there was high unemployment, high inflation, and high interest rates. So basically, people couldn't go forward. We were stuck in a box. I remember going through neighborhoods where people simply had walked away from the homes because they'd got in an adjustable rate mortgage and suddenly their mortgage rate had gone to 18 to 21%. It was cheaper just to walk away than it was to try to renegotiate. Well, all of this has been interesting because what it's led to is really the idea that we need to move away from a uh, national currencies into an individual uh, international currency, and that's been in the works already. I've talked about that in other other presentations. But the idea of an international digital currency is really uh, the idea that it's centralized within the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and that as the whole world comes together in a new order, that they they will also buy into a single currency that will be free from the vagaries and the changes of inflation and the inequities of various currencies around the world. It will remove the United States from its position as the reserve currency of the world, which will have a dramatic impact upon you and I. I don't have time to go into that, but you can look that up on your own. Just go and Google what happens if the dollar is no longer the reserve currency, and you can read the bad news for yourself. But saying all of that, it was uh, Meyer Amschel Bauer Rothschild, the head of the father of the Rothschild banking uh, um, empire, 
who, who said uh, back in the 19th century, he says, give me control of a nation's money and I care not who makes its laws. And that's the real idea that why the idea of one world currency is so critical to the plan of one world government. You cannot control the world until you control its currency. And once you can control people's money, then everybody serves at the will of that government. And that's really what the objective is of one world government. If we all have one currency that the one world government controls, then we cannot buy or sell. Basically, we can't live without submitting to their rules and their authorities. It doesn't matter what the law says. And this is one of those troubling things to many of us today because we know what the law says on so many different things, and yet we find that the current administration uh, and many within the uh, uh, bureaucracies and and the corporate world uh, just ignore what it says. We, uh, even our own FBI often ignores what it knows to be its own laws and its own restriction, restrictions. Um, and so here's the bottom line is that we know that all of this is working towards a goal and that ultimate goal is to control the U.S. economy. In fact, on that point, just a couple of other new developments, the Federal Reserve Board and also the Security Exchange Commission, these, these are the Fed controls the banks and the SEC controls the corporate world. And what they're talking about now is applying a, a green stress test to banks and corporations. In other words, what they say is that they'll look at the basically the loans or the investments that are being made by banks and corporations, and if they don't further glow the greening uh, the green uh, new deal, uh, and they believe that they'll add to inflation, then they'll even though those those uh, loans are performing, for example, an oil company is paying its debt, they'll declare it at risk and it will lower the status of that bank or that corporation so that it has difficulty borrowing money and continuing to expand its development. Um, and it's interesting, not surprising that all these boards and banks are getting on, on board with this because not only do they not want to get squeezed by uh, having their finances controlled that way, but there is a huge profit potential in borderless business. And that's really why you find that the major corporate entities are really kind of behind this idea. If you can become global in the economy, you can remove tariffs, you can remove a lot of the taxes and, and limitations that are put on them, and they can basically do business as they please all around the world. And so that's why they're going to be anxious to sign up for it. You're not going to find a bunch of people uh, objecting to this. Now, you may be asking who specifically are these people. Uh, let me begin by quoting something that Larry Fink, who is the CEO of BlackRock uh, Investments, which is the world's largest asset manager in the world. Uh, Larry is also a member of the World Economic Forum. I've talked about them in the past, and again, we'll be talking about it more. It Basically, he says... Uh, uh, the way things are going, it says its pace will only pick up the idea of, of basically a a, uh, sing, a central currency. The pace for it will pick up in the U.S. Uh, should Joe Biden, who was caric has caricatured shareholder primacy and described it as an absolute farce, be elected president? In other words, the idea that things are privately owned by shareholders, uh, Biden says is an absolute farce, and therefore he will see it brought to an end. Meanwhile, it's, it's Christy Alina, 
uh, Georgievia, uh, the IMF's managing director, International Monetary Fund, and who also happens to be a, a World Economic Forum, Forum trustee, has called for in an article with a subheadline that said, now is the time to take advantage of this opportunity to build a better world for a more green investment. She was talking about build back better. Uh, a week or, before, or so before she said that, uh, she'd addressed the World Economic Forum on the Great Reset, and she thanked Prince Charles and Carl Schwab for bringing us together. Uh, her, her predecessor is the IMF Christine Lagarde. She was the head of the IMF. Now she's president of the European Central Bank uh, and another WEF uh, trustee. Uh, she thanked for injecting green priorities into the asset purchase scheme designed to help the Eurozone withstand the shock created by COVID-19. Again, the idea that we can only give money to those things that are sustainable in, in our world, green sustainable. And along with the central banks and its supervisors, the network for greening the financial system, uh, basically coming out of the Bank of England and being led by its governor, Mark Carney, who is also another World Economic Forum trustee, uh, the central banks have been working, he says, to go on to nudge financial institutions into a more climate-aware direction for a while. In other words, all of this really has not a lot to do with climate, but it has a great deal in controlling and centralizing uh, the economic system so that they're all controlled by the same group of oligarchs. And so as we hear our, our politicians and, and pundits criticizing the oligarchs in Russia, and there certainly are oligarchs, an oligarch means uh, basically ruled by the wealthy and the powerful, uh, we have our own set of oligarchs in this country. When we talk about Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and uh, or even uh, um, Zuckerberg and all these other people who control all that high-tech media, that is, they are oligarchs. They're multi-billionaires uh, who really control far more, even our elections than we want. Um, but really, the interesting character, Klaus Schwab, who's kind of the guy who started the whole uh, World Economic Forum and has fostered it along, had made this statement uh, about after COVID came out. He said, COVID-19 crisis and the political, economic, and social disruptions it has caused is fundamentally changing the traditional context for decision-making. Uh, the inconsistencies, the inadequacies and contradictions of multiple systems from health and financial to energy and education are more exposed than ever amidst a global context of concern for lives, livelihood and the planet. In other words, he's basically saying all of the governmental, economic, social systems need to be reworked. Many of them need to be disassembled and replaced with something else. He goes on, leaders find themselves at a historic crossroads, managing short-term pressures against medium and long-term uncertainties. The world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies from education to social contracts and working conditions. Now, think about that a moment. The world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies, our education, our social contracts and working conditions. He says every country from the United States to China must participate. And every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed 
In short, we need a great reset of capitalism, which, by the way, is no longer capitalism. Uh, he goes on another article to say, capitalism is, in its current form no longer fits the world around us. A global transformation is urgently needed, and it must start with reinstating a global sense of social responsibility. He goes on in another place to say it will require stronger and more effective governments. Essentially, what these people are saying when they talk down on capitalism is that they're representing it as kind of a, a, uh, a ruler baron kind of system like we're having right now, where there's a few very elite and wealthy people who control everything. Actually, capitalism, if it's truly practiced, means free market capitalism. In other words, people are free to do with their money as they please, and they can you know, spend it they want, they can invest it as they want, but they're not. their money isn't being controlled by the government. Well, we've seen in the last I mean, several years how more and more of our money is being controlled by the government, but that's not a good enough because basically the goal of the World Economic Forum, which includes trustees that I've just mentioned are some of the most powerful, influential people people in the world, especially regarding the economy, it very clearly says that they envision by 2030 an end of personal property. In other words, your house is not your house. Uh, the government will allow you to live there, but it's not yours anymore. It belongs to us all, which means it belongs to nobody but the government itself. Now, Again, we can sit there and say, how in the world do people allow themselves to get talked into this kind of thing? And that's where we really find that, uh, as uh, Orwell talked about the newspeak, which was a way of basically controlling the narrative, if you can redefine terms, if you can redefine language, then you can get people to start talking and thinking the way you want. And they started by controlling narrative first and foremost, by making everybody afraid. Again, lockdown, masks, mandates. We had pandemic, which are, this wasn't really a pandemic. It was an epidemic, but it wasn't a pandemic. It was really more of a, what I call a fodemic, a, a plandemic, a condemic. But the effect has been for many people what uh, Dr. Mark McDonald has described as being mass delusional psychosis. What does that mean? It means mass, of course, means across the board, lots of people. Delusional means you believe that something is real when it's not. We believe that COVID is the most deadly thing that's ever hit the planet when it's really not. And we find out that most of the people, 95% uh, of the people who died uh, supposedly of COVID didn't die of COVID, but died with COVID. And there's been a terrible misrepresentation, but it's, not, but it's also been intentional. The idea has been to use COVID to scare people to death so that they'd be afraid to come out of their houses, they'd be afraid to let their face be seen, to get close or interact, and realize what you end up doing. You may create a system where people can't congregate, people can't organize, people can't talk to each other, and begin to realize that maybe we're not uh, as in danger as we think we are. Maybe we have more in common than we think. So it's delusional. You believe something is real when it's not real, but it's also a psychosis because you get to the place where you're so deep into the delusion, you cannot distinguish the real from the unreal. Suddenly, your ability to make a judgment is gone. And that really is interesting because what then happens is when our means of communication become silenced, we cancel people who have dissonant voices. And uh, there's this, and it's done in kind of a lockstep coordination. I mean, when government, big tech, and the mainline media, TV, cable, they all engage in the same rhetoric. You, you go from one to other, they use exactly the same terminology, and, and they 
engage in kind of a word salad where you listen to the Jen Psaki, the White House uh, spokesperson, or or Kamala Harris, or any number of people, and they, they talk and talk and talk, and you can't really figure out what in the world they're saying, and you kind of conclude, conclude that maybe I'm wrong. So there is systemic racism, and there is such a thing as critical race theory, and BLM really does care about black people. And at some point, not only does this create such a confusion, it leads to what's called message fatigue. People, more and more people, I say, I, they say to me, I don't watch the news anymore. I don't, I don't read it. I just don't care anymore. I just given up. It's too stressful. It's too exhausting. I just don't want to hear it anymore. And there's where they have really begun to win because when people stop caring about what's being said and just ignore it and focus on taking care of their own backyard, then as a result, we stop being a community and we become a bunch of people who probably would be better off living in the backwoods of, of, of Alaska by ourselves because that's what we're doing. We just see each other, but we don't care or interact with each other anymore. And that's one of the reasons why I think the church is such a significant threat and and why there was so much effort to shut churches down and keep them from being having services. You know, it's interesting. Um, Bible Review had an interesting article, at least it was interesting to me, about Jezebel, uh, a gal named Janet Howe. Jagaines wrote it. But there was one line in it that really stuck out. And she, he, she was basically saying, what do we really know about Jezebel? And, and she made this comment, says, Jezebel transforms the precious instrument of language into an evil device to blaspheme God and defy the prophet. It's an interesting that Jezebel's spirit, if we will, takes the precious instrument of language. Do you ever think about language as being a precious instrument uh, and a wonderful gift, the thing that separates us from all the other creatures on the planet is our ability to communicate? Uh, other animals may have beeps and sounds, but we can actually reason and think and logically communicate. And they take that away. And they not only use it to blaspheme God, to defy those who speak in his behalf, but also just gives to be silent, to stop using this precious instrument. And that's why I think that what we're seeing right now, in fact, in the present confirmation hearings, where they're talking about really the end of a freedom of speech and religion, the First Amendment to our Constitution, when Katanji Jackson was asked, well, what do you think about packing the court? And she said, well, she doesn't have an opinion on that, which is really crazy because in other contexts, she's actually said that she's behind that. It's this nonsense where we find that we have more and more justices who do not honor the Constitution. And most people just don't get it. If we don't follow the Constitution, the most important right we have, the right to speech, the right to assembly, the right to worship when and how we want to, that goes away and suddenly the government can tell us it's no longer legal. That's when the church becomes a a key uh, point, a focus of uh, persecution. But you see, before they persecute the church, what they want to do is actually compromise the church. And I'm terrified to say that evangelical leaders, I find, are increasingly buying into that, either by reducing the authority of Scripture, by embracing ideas that are contrary to the Bible, and basically going along with government mandates and not standing up for their rights. Uh, you know, it's interesting. In 2 Thessalonians 2, in verse 3, Paul warned, he said that in talking about the last times, he said there would come a falling away 
a great falling away. And, and, and that idea of falling away or departure from the faith and apostasy of the church, he said it's going to come. And uh, that's why he goes on further on in verse 11, the same book. He says, for this reason, God sends him a powerful delusion that they will believe a lie. I feel like people are being increasingly deluded because they just simply believe the nonsense that's being said to them. I have people who will get up and walk out of my service simply whenever I just simply say something that they perceive as political. And it's interesting. Basically, whatever is political is anything that criticizes uh, their side of the party line. Uh, you know, people, some, somebody told me, say, well, you're obviously Republican. I say, well, you're obviously wrong because I'm not, because I think that there should be a pox in both their camps. I'm a conservative. And uh, I find that many Republicans are far more progressive than I am, far more to the left than I'm comfortable with. So I vote for any candidate who is a conservative because I, any, that, and to me, that means somebody who stands for the rule of law and supports the Constitution. But I think you and I also need to be aware that this probably isn't going to go well long term. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul said, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. What you have to understand is that we've seen this happen widely right now. I mean, I think when COVID hit, there were nine leading evangelical leaders who had did podcasts together with uh, Dr. Francis Collin, who was the head of the National Institute of Health. And because he professes to be evangelical, although he is one of the primary promoters of abortion, both in this country and around the world, I don't know what kind of evangelical he is, but uh, I find that uh, to be ludicrous. But basically, they were, they were all saying that you need to, if you love your brother, you'll get the vaccine. They were pushing the vaccine and openly criticizing people like uh, myself, <laughs> you know, openly criticizing people like uh, uh, John MacArthur because he refused to shut his church down. And they wouldn't stand with him. MacArthur mentioned, he said, it was amazing to me how few of his friends really supported him in that decision. And yet now we look back and go, he was right, they were wrong. So I think there's, there's a, it's really, really sad because these are men whom I read their books, I listen to their messages, I respect them tremendously, but they bought into something that I think was so, such a lie and such a deception. We need to realize that sometimes our ears itch and we follow the long, we get flattered because somebody is important to Dr. Francis Collins, Collins, you know, will come on my podcast and it makes me some kind of good guy. Well, anyway, maybe I'm being too harsh, forgive me, Jesus. But uh, Trevor Loudon, who is also a filmmaker and, and uh, has studied communism uh, for a long time, he was speaking at the National Press Club in Washington, uh, D.C. On, on the 20th of May in 2019. And way back then, he made the following observations. He said, Satan's mission is to overturn three institutions bestowed by God to govern humankind, family, church, and civil government. By the way, you know, all society is built upon those three things, about the family, the church, and, and the government. Those are the three institutions that civilized society have to have functional in order for there to be a functional society and not a dysfunctional one. He says, it is the revolution of overthrowing all of those godly institutions and replacing them with satanic communist institutions. He goes on, he says, socialists, and using that synonymous with communists, figured out how to bring down America from within after conducting a 10-year study. 
Through this research, they realized that it was not the military nor the political system that bolstered the United States, but its religion. They believe it's religion, specifically Christianity, that is the strength, the moral strength of America, and it is Christian ethic that has made America as great and strong as it is. That finding led them to their decision to focus on infiltrating the churches across the country to get inside and to weaken them, and through this they could achieve the ultimate goal of subverting religion. Communism seeks to destroy people's faith in God and suppress people who believe in God. They have to do that in order to replace that with their own form of God, which is government. And consequently, people who would seek guidance in the civil government rather than in God or in religion. Again, what is this all about? Well, when we talk about things like critical race theory, when we talk about wokeism, we talk about transgenderism and transsexuality and homosexuality and on and on it goes. When we talk about the fact that adultery is, 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 is a sin in the eyes of God and sexual immorality is a source of condemnation and so forth and so on, uh, that's become almost like you can't say that anymore. And the problem is if we don't say it, we have to ignore the truth and eventually end up denying it because of our passivity. And when we don't do that, we find that the culture begins to just simply meld into the overall governing mindset. And the word of God and the church is no longer a moral authority, a spiritual authority, or any kind of authority at all. It's just another organization that needs to come under government mandate. Uh, I keep on coming back to this in Kings when when uh, Elijah is complaining about the power, the effectiveness of Jezebel. And, and no matter what you think about Jezebel, she was a true believer, a true believer in Baal. She was an evangelist, a proponent for his worship, and tried to win the whole country of Israel under following Baal. And there were precious few who stood up against her. Elijah was most prominent. But God went on to tell him, Elijah, don't give up. I have 7,000 in Israel all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouth have not kissed him. Uh, So those of us who have not bowed down to this modern Baal, uh, we need to encourage each other. We need to stand, but we also need to have that kind of courage of Elijah where we call out that which is not the truth and we're not afraid to speak it. I, my fear is that the church in this country especially is becoming increasingly silent as pastors want to avoid controversy and they don't want strife and division. Uh, they don't even talk about end times because that could be too politically charged. And as a result, they just simply talk about morality. As someone once said that the church has really kind of fallen into a, a, a theistic, uh, moralistic, uh, basically uh, mor- moralism. It's that, that we talk about God, but it's all about morality. We, uh, uh, the word, the fact, the phrase was a deistic, moralistic theism. The deism is that God is there, but he's not involved. Moralism, it's all about right and wrong. And that becomes their theology. And, and that's the danger that we're coming into. No, I think that we need to really pray that God would help us to be prophetic. And that doesn't take a great deal. It doesn't take some anointing as much as it just takes the courage to tell people what the Bible actually says and no longer misrepresent or hide from and cover up. How do you make a difference? Well, 
You know what's really interesting? The Barnard Research Group did a study on what makes for a disciple, and they looked at all this stuff about church attendance and small groups and all those kind of things. And you know what they found? They found that the most uh, clear indication of somebody who was a disciple was that they daily read the Bible, they took it literally, they took it seriously. The daily reading of the Bible was the one clear designator of somebody who was a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because the only reason you would do that is because you want it to be a guide to your life. No matter how great your small group is, and I know some churches that have small groups around anything you want, like uh, all the guys who like to fly fish or ride motorcycles, they hang out together. It's really just an affinity group. It's not a discipleship group. And I think that that's where the promoting of small groups is more for social cohesion than it is even for discipleship. What we need is discipleship. You want to have a small group? Try coming to the prayer meeting. There's a small group of people that you can gather around around one purpose, and that's simply to pray. But if you don't want to be somebody who ends up bowing the knee to Baal, and that's really what this is all about, because Baal was a god of power, pleasure, and prosperity. If you don't want to be one of those, then you need to be in the Word daily. You need to be studying it, and you need to take it seriously. Now, for those of you who say, well, you know, the Bible's hard to read and I get bogged down. It's worth learning. In fact, what happens is your mind develops sharper critical thinking by forcing yourself to understand something that's hard to understand. So again, we have a process where Bible translations become easier and easier to read to the point where it doesn't take any processing because the one who translated or supposedly translated process it for you. Uh, and, and so we don't have to really think very deeply. I mean, a lot of those translations, like the New World or the, the uh, Message Translation and so forth, they've taken the Passion Translation, they've taken all the thinking out of the passage, and they just tell you what it means. And usually they put a limitation on it because the Bible is endlessly deep. And so what you need to do is just find a good translation. You know, the NASB is my favorite. And uh, read it. And it's suffer hard to understand, just labor at it, work hard at it, dedicate the time and the energy to know what is it actually saying to me. And you'll find that not only will you grow in your intellectual capacity, but you will also grow in your spiritual capacity as well. Well, been kind of a long conversation. I hope this, that you'll find this a viable, valuable investment of your time. God bless you and go in His grace. <music>